Welcome to Ask a Lawyer with me, Steve Sleeper. Our guest today is criminal defense attorney Christian Malone in London, Ohio. He specializes in criminal and traffic defense with over five years experience in trials for criminal and traffic offenses and over a dozen jury trials. I began the interview by asking Christian about himself and his firm. So I'm a former public defender. Uh, so, you know, like many folks that work in criminal defense, I started off getting paid uh, to defend people that didn't have money. Up until December of last year, I was a full-time public defender for the last uh, five and a half years. I represented folks in Chillicothe, Ohio, and that gave me an awful lot of trial experience, an awful lot of experience. But uh, as of December, actually, as of January, I've opened up my own office. So now I'm defending folks uh, on, a, on a personal basis, you know, mostly taking uh, DUI and criminal cases. Uh, I do also take some civil cases, although I try to stick to criminal as much as possible. Okay. Uh, you know, I run a virtual office, so I don't, you know, maintain the expense of having to buy or rent real estate. I like it that way. And so far, it seems to be working out very well. Now, what should I expect from a, a, a good criminal defense lawyer? You know, I think the first thing you ought to expect is actually good information. Uh, so you're going to get some information from the officer that arrests you, but can you necessarily trust that information? No, you ought to run that by someone else. Obviously, when you're looking at a criminal case and an OVI is a kind of a criminal case, you need a good trial lawyer. You need somebody who's presentable in front of a jury, in front of a judge, in front of all these different groups of people, and sometimes in front of a prosecutor or a police officer. So you need someone who's good in those situations, but you also need someone that can give you reliable information on how to make the decision. Because as good as your lawyer is, if you don't have the right information to make the decision, you're not going to make a good decision, and you're going to have a good lawyer take you through a bad process. Right, right. Okay. So what happens after a person is arrested? And I think uh, arrest is one thing that confused many of my clients because they hear arrest and they think slap the cuffs on and take into a jail cell and lock away, you know, throw away the key. Um, arrest doesn't necessarily mean uh, you have to be taken into custody. I had many OVI clients that were arrested, and I put that in quotation marks, uh, and taken back to a police station, given a breath test or refuse a breath test, and then handed off to a family member. Uh, but after you get arrested, one of the first things you should expect is they're going to ask you to take a chemical test. That's what the actual arrest in every OBI case in Ohio is referred to as OBI, so operating a vehicle under the influence. Mm-hmm. When they suspect that, they're almost always, and I do say almost always, I had many cases during the pandemic where my clients weren't asked to take a chemical test, which is baffling to me. Uh, they still charge these people with OBI, and they didn't ask them to take a chemical test. Uh, but they're going to ask you to take a test. They'll take you back to whatever police headquarters it is. It may be that may be a state highway patrol post. That may be a sheriff's deputy's office or or even on the side of the road. Some things they can't do on the side of the road. Uh, But they're going to ask you to take some kind of test that will prove you guilty uh, or prove you innocent. That's possible. I've seen it happen. Uh, But for the most part, that's going to be their first priority is to get that test out of you after they've gotten field sobriety tests. Then you're going to be sent off. Most likely, if you don't have multiple prior offenses and if you didn't seriously injure or kill anyone, you're going to be released. Uh, Then you're going to have a few days to think about what you do at your arraignment. In Ohio, you're going to have uh, within five business days, you're going to have an arraignment. So that's going to be the first time you see a judge. And at that point, you're going to have to make several important decisions. Sometimes you're going to have to make those decisions without an attorney. So 
So by this point, whenever you get arrested, a lot of people haven't yet thought about hiring an attorney or they haven't pulled the trigger. Uh, this is going to be something you want to do immediately because you can make mistakes in your case that are very serious early on. You can lose your driver's license or you can fail to get your driver's license back. Uh, so that's one thing I think people should know. Immediately after that arrest, you can lose your license right there on the roadside. All kinds of police officers and law enforcement in Ohio are empowered by the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. If you refuse a chemical test or if you take one and fail, they can take your license right there at that very moment. So you talk about refusing a, 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 a chemical test. Do you have to take the roadside tests and do you have to take the chemical test, understanding that they'll take your license if you refuse, but does it have any further ramifications? Yeah, the answer is always going to be yes or no. You have the right to refuse all those tests, but they all have consequences. First, when it comes to the field sobriety testing, the prosecutor can comment on it. So this is going to be a consequence that you don't feel right away, but you do feel later on down the line. As you look at the possibility of going to a trial and trying to prove yourself not guilty, the prosecutor is allowed to comment on the fact that you refuse to take field sobriety testing. And that may not be the case in all states. You know, these kind of impaired driving cases vary wildly between different states. Uh, I used practice in Georgia while I was in law school, and DUI law down there is very different than OBI law in Ohio. Uh, but the prosecutor can comment on your inability or your uh, your refusal to do the field sobriety testing. It doesn't have any legal effect, but it's something the jury can consider. And the judge gives an explicit instruction that if a person refuses to take field sobriety testing, the jury can consider that evidence of guilt. That's a pretty harmful instruction. And it's something that uh, a good lawyer knows how to basically build up during the trial, during voir dire, to try to let the jury know, although the prosecutor is going to say this and the and the judge is going to instruct you this way, you have the jury, you, the jury have the job. And you, the jury, have the obligation to consider all the evidence. Don't just listen to what the judge says. Don't just listen to what the prosecutor says. Well, I know that the police in every state have some pretty specific protocols that they have to follow, depending on the state, OVI, DUI, DWI. And I know cops are human, just like the rest of us, and they make mistakes. So um, talk about how you deal with that in Ohio. And if they made a lot of protocol mistakes, does it does the case end up going to trial? Or can you talk with the prosecutor about it? Just walk me through that. So <clears throat> I've found that prosecutors across different jurisdictions take things very differently. And a lot of that has to do with uh, how large the jurisdiction that you're in, there's going to be a huge difference between getting an OVI case in Columbus with 2 million people in the metro area versus getting one in two counties over where there's, you know, 40,000 people in the in the county. You're, you're going to have perhaps prosecutors offices that have more resources or sometimes more want to prosecute some of these cases that are marginal. Uh, so I've seen a uh, prosecutor's office in Ross County, Ohio, where I used to practice have basically a policy where if they have enough information that they might get a conviction at trial, don't plead it down, uh, don't offer anything below an OBI charge, which has mandatory penalties. So, you know, when, when a person is looking at this kind of situation, first thing they have to know is where they are. Uh, and without talking to an attorney, you're not going to know, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the one of the most important things that a person ought to know is to have a lawyer in their corner because otherwise they're not going to know the outlook and they should 
ideally have a lawyer that's familiar with the jurisdiction that they're in because they do vary so very wildly. You know, if you cross the county line in some places, that can be the difference between a reduction to something that has no mandatory penalties at all, like a reckless operation versus the prosecutor that will insist, you know, uh, a prosecutor that you, you could talk to all day and they won't offer you anything below statutory minimums, which means mandatory jail time or, or a substituted uh, driver program that's still expensive. Uh, so you're still looking at mandatory financial penalties and possible jail time. Oh. So what are the penalties for, let's say, an, an OVI first? An OVI first uh, in Ohio, it says that it has 72 hours that you have to spend in custody. It even says jail, but it actually doesn't mean that. Uh, it goes on to clarify in that statute that if you're a first-time offender, there's two ways that you can avoid going to jail on a first-time offense if you are convicted. You must spend 72 hours in custody with someone that can be in a driver intervention program, which can substitute for that 72 hours. Okay. Um, now, this is assuming that we have a simple... I'm going to call it a simple OVI. The statute doesn't have a term for that, but it basically just means an OVI that's not enhanced by something else. But in that situation, uh, your license must be suspended for one year, uh, and your license might already have been suspended, so you might get some credit against that time. Uh, it also must find you at least $375, and there's a bill moving its way through the Ohio House that actually may increase these financial penalties. Um, roughly speaking, all of the penalties in Ohio, financially speaking, will probably about double if that passes. And wow. it looks like that may be on its way to passing. So these financial, these may change in the near future. Uh, but minimum $375 fine, up to $1,075. They must suspend your license for at least a year, and you must... Uh, wait at least 15 days before you can get driving privileges. So you have a what's called a hard suspension, a period of two weeks where you can't get any privilege to drive at all. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a life or death emergency, you must not drive. Wow. And then after that, you have to ask the court's permission to, to drive, and you can only drive for limited purposes. There is also an, an ignition interlock device, and I would make special mention, these companies um, send letters when you're, so if you're charged with an OVI offense, the companies will pull that information and send you a letter that says, hey, sign up for our ignition interlock device. Uh, and the clients often don't know that they can't sign up for that until they get convicted. So these are things that only apply if you've been convicted or if you have a prior OBI. I've seen people sign up for these before, and the company should not have allowed them to sign up. But nonetheless, they signed them up, took their money, and installed a device that the client didn't need and wouldn't benefit from. Right, right. Okay. Uh, another good reason to you know call uh, call you as soon as you get out of jail if you get a you know, get an OVI. Yes, and the other conviction I should uh, the other penalty of a conviction is the conviction itself, which uh, if you are, are employed in anything that involves your driver's license, they may not be willing to employ you anymore. Uh, if you have car insurance, they might may not be willing to insure you anymore. And if you're ever charged again, uh, Ohio currently has a ten year look back period. And if you're charged again within that time, that conviction will elevate your penalties. Depending on the mistakes that maybe cops will make, have you been able to beat uh, OVIs for, for clients? Yes. It's very complicated. They're, they're very, I find that OVI law is one of the most interesting areas of criminal law. Whenever I started practicing criminal cases, I find them to be the most technical kind of cases that uh, you deal with, especially as a misdemeanor. 
Um, you know, sometimes in very, very large uh, number of year cases or life sentence cases, possibly death penalty cases, you'll see more complicated technical law. You see that same kind of thing, even on a misdemeanor level with OVI law. Because, uh, for example, there's science involved. So in Ohio, we actually use uh, three different chemical tests. We use breath, blood, and urine. Uh, so we're one of the only states that I'm aware of that currently uses urine as a chemical test to convict someone. Some places use urine as a way to determine if someone on probation has any drugs in their system, but Ohio will actually take your urine and test and see if you have drugs or alcohol in your system. And if it's over a certain level, which is not, uh, the the numbers are not going to be familiar to people. Everyone knows 0.08 is the amount of alcohol you can have in your breath. Uh, But no one really knows what the number is for urine. And the number is also different for blood. But uh, I think it's, you know, Ohio is kind of unique in that aspect. Uh, so they're they're more technical than your average criminal charge. How about uh, plea bargains with OVIs? I don't think most people quite understand. Plea bargains will be offered in almost every case, and there would be no reason to ever plead guilty that they don't offer you something for your plea. You know, the way I put it to clients is never plead for free. I will on occasion have a client that wants to simply go to the judge and plead guilty with no promise of anything from the prosecutor. That is almost 100% of the time a bad idea. Uh, so plea bargains, oftentimes in the counties that I've been in, mean that they'll recommend mandatory minimums. Uh, but I think you know a real plea bargain has to take into account how strong the state's case is. And something that's very hard for me to have my clients understand is if you have a good lawyer, when they pick up a case, uh, they're going to immediately start taking a look and see uh, the war game in their head how the trial will go. And if they think there's a really good possibility they'll win a trial, that really means that the state needs to offer a better deal. The key to criminal trials is knowing when to hold, knowing when to fold them. Right, right. Let's back up a little bit. We were talking about a suspended license. So I, I'm assuming Ohio's like every other state. They, they, they want you to continue to be a good citizen, to make a living, to contribute. So you 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 don't have a license for a couple of weeks, so you've you got to find a way to get to work. After that, do they give you a permit, or what 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 do they do? After that couple of weeks, then you're in what would be called a soft suspension. During that soft suspension period, you have to petition the court, you pay a fee, uh, you do an application, and you tell the court all the things that you'd like to drive for. Now, I've also, different counties handle this in very different ways. Um, one of the counties that I was in in Ross County, they're very, very specific. They say you may drive from your house to this location specified by the address at this time, and you must use the most direct route to get there and to get back. Mm-hmm. Other counties will basically give you a piece of paper that says you may drive to one of these several places. Uh, or really, I've seen counties that do anywhere in this county, you can drive as long as you're not under the influence of alcohol. So it's going to vary heavily by county, and that is probably going to be set by a combination of the prosecutor's attitude in that county combined with the municipal judge or, or worse, common pleas judge. If you're dealing with the common pleas judge, that means either you've had a death or serious injury involved or you have multiple prior OVIs, and you're probably not going to have a driver's license. Um, it, basically, if you're facing a felony OVI, you're not going to be allowed to legally drive for any purpose. The roadside tests, chemical tests, uh, can a person get out of a conviction by refusing them? 
I've seen people who it was a very good idea for them to refuse the roadside tests. I had a gentleman a few years ago that we went to trial with a very young man, and he had rolled his vehicle on US-23. It's got a limited access highway, basically a freeway. Um, and he was found next to his vehicle, and he refused almost everything. He did not take chemical tests or, or the field sobriety tests, and it was a good example of a case where somebody should refuse. We tried that case, and he was still found guilty. Now, as it happens, he was a first-time offender. He actually did not end up serving jail time. I think the judge made the right decision because there really weren't any other aggravating factors, but he took a risk by going to trial, uh, and trial is always a risk. You know, all the factors can be in your favor, and in Ohio, a municipal court jury, uh, if you're facing a misdemeanor, you're going to have eight jurors, and you don't know who those eight jurors are going to be. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I've tried cases that I thought were sure winners and we've lost. We've been found guilty. And I've tried cases that I thought were sure losers. Uh, I had a lady that admitted to using marijuana. I think it was about 15 or 30 minutes before she drove, uh, almost ran a, a deputy off the road. This particular deputy had what's called a drug recognition expert qualification. He didn't actually have the certificate at the time he was making the stop, but he got the certification afterwards, and he was in process at the time he made the stop. And in that we went, I thought for sure, I was telling my client, you know, when you, when you are found guilty, there is an issue for appeal, and we will appeal this. Uh, we'll get you an appellate bond. We'll try to make sure you stay out of custody so you don't serve this mandatory jail time. Uh, and then they came and found my client not guilty. I can't explain that, yeah. uh, but... Juries are juries. You don't know what they're going to do. What kind of procedural mistakes do you see police making with OVIs? So I think uh, in an Ohio, I particularly have to talk about uh, our, our standard, which is substantial compliance. So the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, or NHTSA, puts out a series of standards that people uh, who administer field sobriety tests have to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a very brief period of time in Ohio, uh, I believe it was about 20 years ago, I'm not sure the exact date, uh, court ruled that it had to be strict compliance. Uh, so basically, if the officer made any mistake at all in either instructing the person doing the test or in administering the test itself or in their notation of the test, anything at all would get the test so that uh, the jury wouldn't be able to hear it. Okay. So this evidence would be completely thrown out, would be disregarded. And that only lasted for about a year before the legislature came back and said no substantial compliance is okay. Uh, and what that means is basically almost in all circumstances, a judge will allow a jury to hear about field sobriety testing. I've seen some pretty poor field sobriety tests done. You know, for example, everyone's familiar with the what's called the horizontal gaze and stagmus test, where they hold your finger or some kind of stimulus out in front of your face. We've seen officers do those in less than a minute, and I'm a member of the National, uh, the DUI Defense Lawyers Association, and we have some uh, fairly knowledgeable folks that have been through these trainings. Basically, we figured out that it's, it's impossible to do those in less than a minute and really do a good job and follow the guidelines. Okay. Uh, so if you see an officer do one of those in less than a minute, you know you've got a, a suspicious case to be sure. We see officers all the time administer uh, prep to the walk and turn test, one of the other three standard field sobriety tests, on people that are over the age of, I believe, 60 is the cutoff, uh, or people that are overweight. And the guidelines say don't administer on these folks because you won't get a significant answer. The biggest mistake 
to put it all in a big bracket that the officers make is not understanding what field sobriety tests are. Field sobriety tests are meant to be a, an initial stage to tell the officer if they have enough information to proceed forward and ask for a chemical test. Uh, and the officers don't understand what the meaning of these field sobriety tests are. They've been taught that these are evidence that you're meant to use at trial. Uh, and of course, they will use them at trial, but they weren't developed to be the kind of thing that could develop, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that someone's under the influence. For example, the horizontal gaze and stagmus tests in the in the studies that have been done was found to have something like a 70 or 80 percent confidence interval. Uh, and even then it was only tested in a low range. So it's not very accurate. It's not the kind of thing you'd want to do if you wanted to eliminate all doubt. Our guest today on Ask a Lawyer with Steve Sleeper is criminal defense attorney Christian Malone. His phone number is 740-200-0018. And his website is clmalonelaw.org.